A city as beautiful as Paris doesn't just happen all by itself. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, we'll learn how redevelopment projects from centuries past were designed to make Paris into a showcase city for the civilized world. A city designed to help people get out and walk and appreciate the city and to enjoy a city. That's something that was planned into Paris in the 17th century. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing for rulers in the 1600s to be doing. Author Joan Dijon explains how the rulers of France designed Paris as a blueprint for what makes a city a great place to visit or live. If you enjoy biking, you'll love Amsterdam. The Dutch have created a system of dedicated bike trails that can take you all around town or all the way to Belgium. You don't ever have to get on the roads with the cars. There's a bike pass designed specifically and only for bicycles. Enjoy Paris and Amsterdam, model cities for modern living in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. It's no accident of history that Paris displays a type of elegance the whole world admires. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn how urban planning as far back as the 1600s fashioned Paris into the world's model for a civilized and welcoming city. And we'll check in with listener tales about visiting Paris a little later in the hour at 877-333-7425. One of the most enjoyable civilizing aspects of European cities is an increase in programs to encourage biking as an alternative to cars. And I'd say the Netherlands is Europe's leader in making cycling an efficient way to get around. In fact, I've found I can usually find my way around Amsterdam faster by renting a bike that I keep fastened to the rack in front of my hotel than by calling a cab. Nika Johnson is of Dutch and American parents, and she guides visitors around the Netherlands. She's back with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explain how biking is an essential part of the Dutch way of living, and how we visitors can take part in the cycling culture of Amsterdam and Holland. Nika, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Do you own a bike? I own five. You own five <laughs> bikes. I, I guess there's more bikes than people in the Netherlands. There are more bikes than people. What is it about the Netherlands that makes uh, biking just so obvious? A lack of space. <laughs> lack of space to park your cars. It's incredibly expensive to own a car. So the government has policies that encourage people to bike and discourage them from owning a car? Definitely. A lot of times I've been in Amsterdam, a great city, 800,000 people, 700,000 people, something like that, and I'm in a square surrounded by lots of people, and I look around, and it's like there's no cars. But then I look around, and there must be 200 bikes parked here, stacked there, mm-hmm. you know, squeezed in over there. It's amazing. If each one of those bikes were a car, you couldn't get anywhere in Amsterdam. It'd be so congested. Exactly. There is absolutely nowhere to uh, to move around with your cars. You, uh, in fact, the, the bicyclers are the king of the roads. How even, so? Even more so than pedestrians. Really? The whole cities are designed for bikes. How would the city be designed for a bike? Because the roads are so small. Mm-hmm. You, uh, we call them, basically, the cars have to be a Hot Wheel because they're so little. And there's just nowhere to put a car, right. literally. So there's bike paths, there's bike lanes, there's mm-hmm. bike uh, traffic signals. Traffic designed entirely for the bike. So you get to a stoplight and you have a dedicated light specifically for the bike. It's fun to have a bike and there's no reason a tourist couldn't. It's nice because you can pull right up to where you're going. Even if I had a taxi, I might prefer to be on a bike. Once you get the hang of it, mm-hmm. zipping around Amsterdam by bike, it's hard to beat it. Mm-hmm. In fact, most locals detest walking. They prefer to grab their bike because you get there faster and you can pull right up to the front. And you've got your your saddlebags, they call it, so you can go shopping. Mm-hmm. And if you're really uh, uh, progressive, like I have, I said five bikes. One of them is called a box feet, which means it's got a box on the front. And I'm probably the most popular person in my neighborhood because I help everyone move. Oh, so feet is the local word for bicycle. Feetsen, and, yeah. and a buck's feet would be like a pickup truck. Exactly. <laughs> and everything is so small in the Netherlands, so you're a popular person because you've got the bicycle equivalent of a pickup truck. I'm the, exactly. I'm the pickup oh, truck Nika. for the neighborhood. <laughs> oh, that's great. We're at 877-333-RICK, and Nika Johnson from Holland is our guest right now as we find out how the Netherlands makes safe bicycle access a priority all across the country. By the way, Nika was on Travel with Rick Steves just a few weeks ago talking about what's new in Amsterdam. If you missed that program, you can listen to it online. Look for it in the August 2014 show archives in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Yvonne's calling in from Howell in Michigan. Yvonne, thanks for your call. 
Hi. Yeah. My question is, can you suggest any bike paths, maybe one, two hours, for bikers who are not used to uh, traffic? I live in Michigan. <laughs> There's a lot of woods and snow and fields, so we don't have much traffic where I bike. So you're concerned about driving amid all of the cars and the trucks and everything? That's right. Oh, that's a good question. Nika, if you want to bike without worrying about getting run over by a truck, uh, what's your advice? Well, the nice thing is is that you don't ever have to get on the roads with the cars. There's a bike paths designed specifically and only for bicycles. And if you start getting outside of the city center, you will see mopeds, that can participate with you on the same bike path, but you can get anywhere between the low countries. Literally, you can go to Belgium, you can go to Luxembourg, all by bike path, and never so have to get in, on a main in road. in the big city, you'd be sharing the roads with cars or on the side of and the road. And some of them, yeah. Some but of the streets once in you the get old... In, in the countryside, it is parallel a parallel system, one it, for cars and one for bikes. Exactly. That's good news, Yvonne. Well, what about in Amsterdam, specifically? Can we find those bike paths in Amsterdam? It's pretty easy to see which ones actually are the bike paths because okay. typically they're a different color. They tend to be a little bit more red than the streets. Oh, great. So, and a lot of times they're actually recessed as well from the sidewalk. Quite often you don't have to actually be on the road with them. Some of the old center the, where the, you're more into kind of the medieval heart of Amsterdam, you will be with them, but the cars are pretty... Cars are used to bicycles. And I mean, there's as many bikes as cars on the road. Exactly. They are very good at maneuvering around you. Now, there is a, a little pitfall for Yvonne, is that if you're in a pedestrian street, you should be walking your bike. Is that right? Or you can get Correct. a ticket. A pretty, yeah, you pretty can get a ticket. ticket. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's really helpful. Yvonne, do you have any other concerns about biking? No, that's great. Thanks very much. Thanks for your call. Ali's on the line in New York. Ali, thanks for your call. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. I, you know, ride my bike in New York, and there is, you know, sort of, like, official rules, and then, like, the unwritten rules of, like, riding your bike on the street. And I was wondering um, what the differences are between, you know, New York and Amsterdam, and if there are any unwritten rules or customs that I should know about. I don't know, because I've not cycled in New York, but <laughs> uh, I think I would be more afraid there than in Amsterdam. One thing, Americans always like to have a helmet when they bike, and a lot of us are shocked when we see people biking without helmets in the Netherlands. What's the take on helmets in Amsterdam? Easy, there are none, uh, except for the children. I right. think up until the age seven, it's illegal. They have to wear it up till age seven, but, but after that, it's your choice. generally don't wear helmets. No, 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 no adults will. And then what would be the, the biggest danger in the city? I, I think, uh, for me, oncoming trams and, and silent uh, trolleys and so on, this is, you can be... Uh, sideswiped by one of those, and, and also there's tracks everywhere, tram tracks. Exactly was what I was going to say. The, the biggest thing you have to work around is the, the tracks for the trams and Be the trains. Because if you hit it at an angle, your, your tire can fall into that track, and then you can flip over on your bike. Actually, you want to hit it at an angle. Okay, uh, how you do don't you want to Yeah, it? you want to kind of come at it almost at a... At a right angle. A at right a, angle. At a hard angle, a hard yeah. Angle. If you hit it at a soft angle, you can fall into it. it right. Could, yeah. So, Ali, there's a couple of tips for you. Also, a big deal is theft. I don't know about New York, but in Amsterdam, there are a lot of stolen bikes. Uh, Nika, how do you keep your bike from being stolen? I understand that some people have a fancy bike they keep at home and one they take out on the road. That's part of my five-bike system. You have your weekend bike... It's usually a little bit more plush. You have gears. Uh -huh. uh, it's fancy. It's expensive. But you're never really too far from it. So you can kind of keep an eye on it. Right. Um, you have your everyday kind of piece of junk because mm -hmm. you don't want it to be something that is tantalizing to the thieves. And, and, then, then, and then you have your box bike. And then I have my box feet. And then I have a fold-up bike that if you go on the train with a fold-up bike, and I suggest that if you're actually going to see... Um, some of the other cities around there, you can take that on the train and you don't have to pay for it. Now, you can take a, a, a full bike on a train, but you can, you but you have to pay extra? for that. And oh, quite okay. often it's more expensive than the actual train ticket. <laughs> Does that help, Allie? Yep, that's great. Thank you. Thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking biking through Amsterdam with Nika Johnson, a, a local guide who bikes. She's got five bikes. That makes the point pretty clearly. Nika, we've talked about the, the rudiments of biking. Let's actually do some sightseeing. Let's say you and I were to meet in front of the main train station in Amsterdam, and, mm -hmm. and we have three hours to bike around the town. Mm -hmm. Where would you take me? Well, I would take you on probably the old, the outside. It's called the Singelgracht, mm -hmm. or the Single Canal, and it's the outside because it's uh, very easy to navigate for, for a newbie, <laughs> if you will. And we can head all the way out and go to the, um, to the Museum Plein, 
where all the museums are. And you okay. can lock up your bike there. And everything has been redone there. Most of the, all the three major museums have been restored. On the way, you'd pass uh, Vondel Park. Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of times there's... That's a great place to bike oh. through, in the central park of, of Amsterdam. And it is an absolutely amazing place to go if you want to people watch. And so everyone will go there. And if it's a sunny day, you can pretty much guarantee that nobody's working. Yeah. <laughs> They're I, all... I feel like a kid on a sunny summer day with a bicycle in Vondel Park. And you've got these paved lanes and mm-hmm. you can just have a beautiful time there. Also, one of the most charming parts of Amsterdam is a district, sort of the the quintessential photogenic district, uh, the Jordan. And you can park your bike on the top of the little bridges for mm-hmm. the views. It's just delightful. Exactly. Yeah, anytime you're going over a, a we call that, that's the only nosebleed area there is because you're actually getting to uh, sea level <laughs> when you go up over the, uh, the canals. But uh, there are also wonderful places to actually stop and take a picture mm. uh, down the canals. And there are some that you can actually see four or five canals. We've done our tour of Amsterdam now, and I'm ready for a little fresh air, a little break from the intensity. At the train station, mm-hmm. we can hop on a boat, mm-hmm. a ferry, and head north. Let's finish off this little discussion about biking in Amsterdam. Tell me what happens when I head north from Amsterdam. How can I get a, a nice dose of the countryside? Very quickly. It's amazing how concentrated Amsterdam is. And as soon as you get on that ferry and you go over to the north side, it very quickly, within a couple of kilometers, you're already in the countryside. And, of course, you have your dedicated path. So if you really just want to go and let the wind blow through your hair and smell that, uh, as my father would say, uh, the cows, smells like money. That's where our cheese is being made. So you can even pop into, there's little hoovers that we call it, uh, farms, that you can actually go in and buy things. They'll have things sitting out on the side of the street saying, come in and buy eggs and your cheese. Fresh and farm produce. Fresh farm produce. Just That's where we go. 15, 20-minute bike ride north of Amsterdam. If, if even that, that, yeah. Just hearing you describe that, I can almost feel the jostle as everybody's getting on that, that ramshackle ferry mm-hmm. and all the bikers are piling on. It's free. The ferries just go constantly. It's all free for cyclers. And you roll off at the ferry on the other side and within 10, 15 minutes, minutes, you can smell the money, all you those smell. cows. <laughs> <laughs> this is the good life. On a bike, enjoying the, the herring, mm-hmm. the dairy, the dairy, the art, the history, the people, the good life. Nika Johnson, thank you so much for giving us a, a little inside track on a bike to enjoying Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Thanks for having me, Rick. Whether you're dreaming about visiting Paris for the first time or you've been there many times already, it's no accident that Paris makes quite an impression on its visitors. Up next, we'll find out how the modern city was essentially invented by France's 17th century rulers who wanted to make Paris a model for civilization. And we'll check in with listeners for your impressions of Paris at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm David Sedaris from the United States, and I travel with Rick Steves. Wait. Je voyage. Right? Would I say je voyage souvent? De temps en temps, je voyage avec Rick Steves. Wow. You've picked up that French very well. De temps en temps, pas toujours, mais de temps en temps, je voyage avec mon ami Rick Steves. 
When you notice how the city's wide, tree-lined boulevards provide symmetrical views of magnificent architecture in the heart of Paris, much of the credit goes to Baron von Haussmann. He led massive reconstruction projects in the mid-1800s that replaced crowded medieval neighborhoods with grand avenues, elegant parks, elaborate fountains, and a long-needed underground sanitary sewer system. And yet, as our next guest points out, the city's history of redesigning itself with massive public works projects goes back to the vision of French rulers in the 17th century. They wanted to turn Paris into an urban model for the civilized world. As Joan Dijon describes in her book How Paris Became Paris, the Invention of the Modern City, it took a century to transform Paris into the mythic place we know today. Joan is a trustee professor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's written nine books so far on French history, literature, and material culture. She's here to tell us how Paris became Paris. Joan, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be talking to you. Now, Joan, you know, I've always thought when you go to Paris, it seems like it, it came of age after the revolution uh, in the 1800s, in the, in the age of uh, Baron Haussmann, uh, when all the grand boulevards were made and so on. But the case of your book is that Paris, the elegance of Paris, and Paris being established as as the sort of cultural capital of Europe, goes back long before that. Yes. Uh, the whole project of Paris is one that gradually takes shape in the course of the 17th century. And a city was built up between 1600 and 1700. Paris took a shape that is essentially the center of Paris, the shape it still has today. Now, when we look at the, the cityscape of Paris, it's just you can't help but take a photograph on every street corner. Uh, there's sort of an ethic there, and, and it seems like they have made a point to not obliterate beautiful viewpoints and boulevards lead to grand monuments, and there's a sort of a, a homogeneity in the architecture with the, the equal height of the buildings and, and the beautiful uh, roofing. Talk a little bit about the cohesiveness of Paris and, and where that came from. In the 17th century, various projects begin. There are two main projects in the 17th century. The first is a real citywide project created by Louis XIV, his ministers, and the two men he named to be chief architects of the city of Paris. And they plan together, with weekly meetings on this, a complete redesign of the cityscape of Paris. So that was much was dictated, the, the new kinds of streets, the width of streets, etc. And then the second body that came into all this was the newly formed Royal Academy of Architecture. And the, head, the first head of the Royal Academy of Architecture was one of the two architects planning the redesign of Paris, and they dictated, the Royal Academy and its members dictated, literally, all kinds of things from how high buildings had to be, the limit of height, the minimum and the maximum, how much width you had to have in city squares, and if your square was this wide, how high the buildings around it had to be, how wide streets had to be, minimum, maximum. So you have a whole sense of a city's a real plan for a city and rules for a city being developed in the course of the century. So this was in the 1600s, and this is the same time Louis XIV was expanding Versailles, and I would have thought, I've heard he spent half the year's income of the entire country of France, I mean the most populous, wealthiest country in Europe. He invested half of the annual income of that country in constructing Versailles, and when you go out there, you can you can imagine why. I mean, it was, he rerouted rivers to power the fountains and so on, but at the same time, you're saying he had a parallel uh, venture going on and turning his capital city into a grand city as well. And that project for Paris began long before Versailles really kicked in, even before it began. Hmm. He became, he re-enters Paris with his uh, wife in 1660. From then on, the court only moves out to Versailles in the early 1680s. So he has over two decades during which his life is Paris-based. And very early on, his chief minister Colbert warned him. He said, <laughs> look, that Versailles project is not going to be the measure of you. Great kings have to also have great capital cities. Wow. Now, when I think about Paris from that era, I think of the Pont Neuf, the new bridge, which was actually, it was new at the time, but it's one of, I guess it's the oldest bridge now, the one that connects the Ile de la Cité with the left and the right bank, and then also the Place des Vosges, the most beautiful square in the city where you just feel like, I, I, I lived here in a previous life, and I must have been an aristocrat. Uh, talk about the Place des Vosges and the Pont Neuf as part of this whole vision of Paris. 
both of those projects, I'm so I love those projects too. I have to tell you, it's still my favorite square too, and I wish I lived there in a present life, much <laughs> less a past life. But both of those are projects that were already there. Those are projects that are from Louis XIV's grandfather, Henry IV. The first thing he did when he managed to conquer Paris after the wars of religion in the, at the very end of the 16th century was to complete the project of the Pont Neuf the new bridge, which had been suspended for several decades. And then he started the project for the Place des Vosges. So it's like Louis XIV was building upon that. Uh, those were the seeds of the greatness of right. Paris, maybe. I think so. His grandfather's grandson, he was. Hmm. Bridges are interesting because, uh, you know, we've got London Bridge, we've got the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, and we've got, of course, Pont Neuf in Paris. How was Pont Neuf special? Those are two great examples because both the Ponte Vecchio and London Bridge, which are already in existence at that time, were bridges typical of the period. That is, they were built with houses on both sides. So the whole bridge itself, the center, was a very narrow thing. And the Pont Neuf is a completely different thing. It was the first major urban bridge built without houses. So were, were they having houses on the bridge like we see at the uh, old bridge in Florence and, of course, the historic uh etchings of London Bridge. They had shops and little houses all along the bridge. So you walked across the bridge, and if you hadn't been there before, you might not even know you're on a bridge. You feel like you're on a street lined with houses. What was the economic purpose of having the houses on the bridges? Well, the constructions paid for the construction of the bridge. So the houses and the property, the rental of, of that, paid for the actual building of the bridge. Okay, so Henry IV in Paris was going to say, hey, we don't need to grovel for the money. The state will pay for this, and we'll have a grand bridge that's not littered with shops on it. Exactly. Although he did have to do a little work. He didn't have a lot of income in the early 17th century, mm. in the early 1600s. So he taxed all the wine coming into the city of Paris. <laughs> that's how he paid for the bridge. So the drunkards of Paris paid for the new bridge. That's no question about it. That's well, what people said. Why uh, not? Joan Dijon is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her latest book is called How Paris Became Paris, The Invention of the Modern City. Joan teaches Romance Languages at the University of Pennsylvania. She's written nine books on French literature, history, and culture, including The Age of Comfort. She divides her time between Philadelphia and Paris, where she lives on a street where the number four bus service began in 1662. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. And Barrett's calling in from Dallas in Texas. Barrett, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, it's uh, great to talk with you. Just a, a follow-on question in reference to uh, Place de Vosges. One of the things I think that's uh, really striking about that area is that you come from sort of the, the narrow streets of the, the Marais, and I'm just curious as to how intact kind of the, the surrounding neighborhood is, and if that was much of the same feeling that you would have gotten at the time as you kind of walked from the narrower streets into that uh, public space. Yes. Much of that neighborhood is absolutely identical. Not at, when the Place des Vosges was inaugurated in 1612, but after that, immediately after that, Henry IV then Louis XIII start a plan to rebuild this area of Paris that continues through the century. So by, say, 1650-1660, at that point, the surrounding neighborhood looked very much as it still does today. You know, those are the tangled streets where it was easy for um, malcontents during difficult times who wanted to start a revolution could get together and put up barricades, aren't they, Joan? Yes, I think they were pretty good at doing that through much of Paris. Yeah. The Civil War in the middle of the century, you know, it's pretty easy to barricade what you want to barricade if you're good. Now, I understand that when we go to Paris today, we see these grand boulevards and we think that's so elegant and people-friendly, but actually it was uh, just good military tactics because the government needed to keep the hungry, angry people down. And if you have long boulevards... It's easy for the cannon, filled with little chains and nails and what Napoleon called grape shot, to just spray down that big boulevard and, and knock all the people down. Is that your understanding of the origin of those boulevards? In the 19th century, yes. However, the 17th century, Louis XIV, one of his initial plans for Paris was to create the original boulevard, and that was a completely different And that was an uh, elegant thing, not boulevard. a military strategy, but an elegant exactly. thing. And those exactly. boulevards would lead to grand monuments, because that's one of my favorite things about Paris, is the way the streets sort of... Just draw your eye right to, you know, the Pantheon or whatever. Absolutely. The first project for a street, the very young Louis XIV, before he returns to Paris with his bride, he orders them six months before he wants them to build the streets leading to the Place des Vosges. He wanted to have the, the marriage celebration ceremony for his return mm. there. And he said, open them up. I want good, perfect access so that you can see the people arriving. We'll see the place as they get there. So, Barrett, are you, are you relating to the uh, grandness of Paris from your memories of being in Paris? Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, if I may just ask another question about the Place de Vosges, I think maybe 
the reason we all enjoyed it, and I was listening earlier to your uh, to kind of the talking points behind it, is, is the scale. And maybe it's a smaller scale than what was built in the 19th century, and I think that there's something appealing about that. I've been told that the Place de Vosges was really the kind of the seminal, sort of the, the beginning for, for the rest of the squares of Europe. Is that accurate? It's the first planned city square in Europe, with residential architecture being the focus of the square. You're absolutely right. It's the beginning. And I like what you commented there, Barrett, that it's uh, on a people's scale. They would have had grand squares elsewhere. And, and, you know, the Italian notion of the piazza goes all the way back to Roman times where people would gather in the communities. But the elegance and you know, where you want to dress up and stroll and see and be seen, uh, I think that's that's very striking about uh, Paris and the Place de Vos. Barrett, thanks for your call. All right, thank you very much. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Joan Dijon. We're talking about her new book, How Paris Became Paris. And Lisa's on the line, calling in from Puyallup in Washington. Hi, Rick. Hi, Joan. Thank you so Hello. much for being on the show today. I think you're not going to have that much trouble selling your book because there are so many people who love Paris and are anxious for any information that will enhance their understanding of the culture and the city. So um, I think you're going to do just fine. You're right. I've been having Joan's book on my desk in my office, and I've already had to tell several people, no, you can't take that home and read it yet. I'm still working with this book. But there's, a, there's an appetite for Paris. I think that is a good, good topic. There definitely is. And um, so, Joan, I'm sure in your book you address some of the, the parks and public spaces, the places where people can walk or gather, such as the areas along the Ile Saint-Louis where people can be near the water. Was that part of the grand plan also? Yes, thanks a lot for that, Lisa, and thanks for the encouragement. I need it. Um, yes, the riverside is built up and really planned for the first time in the course of the 17th century. They develop the embankments, which before were just practical places. They developed them as walking spaces. And the first use of the modern French term for sidewalk refers to a walkway by the river, right about where the Orsay Museum is today, by the way. Can you kind of paint a visual picture of what the uh, banks of the Seine were before the embankments uh, were built? Muddy things. Um, they were not things of beauty. They were used to just to bring merchandise. The Seine is much a working river in the 17th century, so boats would dock directly there, just pull up and unload merchandise. There were tanneries along the river, which is one of the things, they, a real project to get rid of that for the smell, for the pollution in the water. So the Seine was not thought of as a thing of beauty to be appreciated. Well, that must have been a huge improvement to the city to build those embankments, and they survived today. Do they survive today pretty much the way they, they were built originally? Yes, that's amazing continuity. And it's terrific that Lisa mentioned, for example, the Ile Saint-Louis, because the Ile Saint-Louis was also built, a whole constructed island, and it's one of the places that made them think about the idea of looking, because the people on the Ile Saint-Louis built the first balconies mm. in the city, because they wanted to look out I on the river and watch balconies. people, yes. and people would gather along the river to watch the Ile Saint-Louis. So it was that sense of walking and looking. And today, of course, uh, Paris has the Periplage, where they truck in yes. all this sand and hammocks and trampolines and little beach cafes. They close down traffic and they turn the, the whole road that goes along the embankment into a beach. Uh, but any time of year, you've got the embankment landings where people go and have their picnic dinners and it's just an elegant time in the, in the twilight hours. And also they've got these new little, little tiny theaters and installments of modern art and parks and people-friendly zones and people can go have their yoga classes and they can have impromptu dance gatherings and so on right along the river, as if the city is trying to draw people down to the river socially. That was a real surprise for me when I was researching the book, to learn that all those kinds of entertainment have been associated with the river from the start. Hmm. For example, the minute the new bridge is built, on the bridge, people start setting up little impromptu stages, and actors would perform, and crowds would gather on the bridge to watch the performances, and then right below the bridge, I mean, they could have set up a beach anywhere in Paris, but the first public beach that I know of in the city, was set up right below the bridge, and they could look at the bridge, and people from the bridge could look at them. I love it. They start bathing boats. This conversation is inspiring me to sort of think of a new dimension of Paris, just the whole environment along the Seine. You could walk up one bank and down the other, and you've got so much history there, and you've got so much love of life today, and you've so much culture, so much people watching. What a great dimension of Paris. Well, that was one of the plans. Louis XIV said he wanted to make Paris, and I'm quoting him, a place dedicated to pleasure. 
And that, I think, you still have the feeling of today, and that's what you're describing. So, Lisa, if you grabbed uh, ice cream at Bertillon, I think that's probably <laughs> a handy place to get your ice cream. Yeah. What's your memory, Lisa, of the banks of the Seine? Oh, this is on our must-do list every time we go to Paris. Go and stand in line, get your ice cream in a bowl, because if you get it in the cone, it will melt too fast. Um, <laughs> and then walk over to the river and walk down that very steep, narrow, little cast-iron staircase. Be really careful because you have ice cream in one hand. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, find a place on one of the little benches there along the river and sit and just watch the river traffic. And you might hear the sound of, uh, as you said, some musicians down the river on the bridge. And it's just a very evocative and sort of peaceful place removed from the hustle and bustle, but but totally Paris. And it's one of our favorite things to do, and your insight into Ile Saint-Louis and how it was developed will only enhance our enjoyment of it in the future. Wow. So thank you, Joan. Well, you're great. You evoke it very beautifully. Yeah, I was going to say, you. Lisa sounds like a budding travel writer. Lisa Absolutely. In, uh, from <laughs> Thanks for the call, Lisa. Thank you. Enjoy your next time to Paris. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Joan Dijon, and her new book is called How Paris Became Paris. And uh, I just love to learn more about Paris. It's a city that all of us can go back to for the rest of our lives. Can you just close by giving us an example of of something you could learn from your book that would make our visit more meaningful and, and help us better appreciate the city of light? For me, the most important thing that I realized about from the whole scope of the projects during the 17th century was the extent to which Paris had been conceived as a a walking city, a city designed for pedestrians, a city designed to help people get out and walk and appreciate the city and to enjoy a city. And so the description that both callers are making of the way they appreciate the city and feel it has a human scale and have experiences that they do on foot, that's something that was planned into Paris in the 17th century. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing for rulers in the 1600s to be doing. And that, I think, is quite wonderful. And everyone, Henry IV and Louis XIV, both were thinking about the people of Paris and their decrees constantly say, we want the people to have a place to go. We want them to have a place where they can walk. We want them to have a place where they can enjoy themselves. And that's an amazing thing that I think has continued so that people still go to Paris and feel they want to be out and about in the streets and enjoying it in the same way. So we, we're doing what Henry IV and Louis XIV wanted us to do when we tour Paris that way. Well, that's nice. Every once in a while to consider the positive legacy of some of these divine monarchs. Yes, Yes, I think so. (laughs) Joan Dijon, best wishes with your book, How Paris Became Paris, and thanks for giving us a little better understanding of a city that you clearly know and love well. And thank you, Rick, for taking the time to interview me. Il y a des gamins, des artisans, il y a des camelots et des agents, et des matins pour l'instant. Now that we know how Paris came to be the beautifully appointed city the whole world falls in love with, let's keep the phones open at 877-333-7425. Share your stories or questions with us about Paris next on Travel with Rick Steves. There are so many dimensions of Paris. I'm thankful that I can return again and again for the rest of my life and enjoy entirely different but equally enchanting aspects of the city. Let's talk about your experiences in Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Rory's on the line in Frisco in Colorado. Hi, Rory. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Are you thinking about Paris? I am booked for Paris. My wife and I are going, and we're taking our nine-year-old. You're taking your nine-year-old. How are you going to manage that? <laughs> With <laughs> lots of cappuccino, I think. <laughs> That's right. Have you thought much about how you're going to make it fun from a family point of view? Well, I definitely um, want to limit the amount of things we're going to try to see, and I want to spend out a lot of time outside in the fresh air picnicking. 
beyond that, I'm looking for some advice. Well, first of all, you gotta you gotta keep the family well fed and housed, right? Uh, I know right. that Paris is not a cheap city, but I know from my own experience, you can pack a lot of kids into one hotel room. The more people you put into one hotel room, the better. So you've just got one child, but uh, you can certainly take a double room and make it a triple. If you have even two or three kids, you can get a big room and, and all camp out together and save enough money to pay for your food. Uh, when it comes to eating, remember the French live in tight quarters and they go out to have a quiet, intimate time together and they don't really have as much uh, patience with noisy kids and uh, during their nice uh, dinner time experience. But do remember also, Europeans eat later than we do. And if you want with a, a child, a nine-year-old, I'd recommend going to the restaurants you want to go to, but just go at the first seating. You know, arrive earlier before the local crowd does. There's lots of bistros where you got casual seating outdoors, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of... Uh, you go to the marketplaces, and there'll be great little bistros nearby that are more rustic, and, and that would be more fun, I think, if you got a child with you. Oh, great. Great idea. Also, uh, you know, the city has so much to do with children. Uh, there are guidebooks, and there are websites that can help out, but... Uh, uh, I don't know if your nine-year-old's into rollerblading, but if you're traveling with teenagers especially, they they shut down much of the city uh, every Sunday afternoon, and uh, not shut down the city, but they, they make uh, accommodate a gang of a couple hundred rollerbladers, and, they, and the police escort them, and they go all through the city enjoying the great boulevards of Paris on rollerblades. That's just one example. Uh, remember, there's a local magazine that comes out every week or two called Periscope, and uh, it just costs uh, uh, less than a dollar. Periscope has a children's section in it, and you can always refer to the Periscope and know what's happening. Great. Those are great ideas. (laughs) It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I remember when our kids were really little, we would go just to the parks and pretend we were living there. And our kids, when they were really little, they'd play in the sandbox with the the local kids. And it gave us a chance to have a picnic and kind of hang out with other young parents with their kids. And it's quite easy to feel like a, a temporary Parisian, uh, especially when you go to the park with your kid and, and just enjoy that. And, you know, Paris is an elegant place for adults, and it's like there's a parallel world that's just as elegant on, on kids' standard. And you can go to these parks, and they've got the marionette theaters, and they've got the chance to go in a rowboat, and they've got the classic old 100-year-old carousels, and uh, plenty of ways for your kids to fall in love with Paris. And when all else fails, you've got Disneyland France just uh, at the end of the subway line, so you can head on out there if you want to. I've, our kids never went to Disneyland in California, but they've been to Disneyland in Paris several times, and it uh, provides all the family fun you'd hope to find in Disneyland in the United States. Except you serve wine. They serve wine at the French Disneyland, which is much nicer. Oh, that sounds much more tolerable. Yes. All right, Roy, thanks for your call, and good luck with your trip. Uh, let us know how it goes. Thanks so much, Rick. Okay, bye now. We're talking Paris, and uh, Barbara's calling in from Mill Valley in California. Barbara, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? I'm traveling to Paris with a child, but an older one, a girl that's 12, almost 13, and we'll be there Mm. for just two days during the middle of the week. We have a hotel with a triple room that we got, and I'm looking for um, ideas to introduce her to Paris in a way that she doesn't come home thinking it's another amusement park. I don't know if that mm-hmm. makes sense. but <laughs> Well, I think that's a, a very good approach, and I think with a, a child who's 12 or 13, you can expect a little more than Rory, who's got a 9-year-old. And I exactly. remember my first time in Paris, I was 14, and it was really impactful. I, I remember venturing into the metro system with my mom and we would figure it out and we would make the mistakes and my mom would let me call the shots and she would be there as a sort of a uh, safety net and we got off at Trocadero and I remember climbing up the stairs with my mom and uh, you know just sort of wonderstruck by the big city because I'd never been any place like this and we turned the corner at Trocadero and there it was the Eiffel Tower (laughs) and I just couldn't believe it I was just shocked but I was just being impacted by this and uh I just think it's a great parenting opportunity to be able to take your kids there and expose them to the wonders of our world. And also remember there's a bike company in Paris. It's called Fat Tire Bikes. And I've been on it, and my kids have both been on it. And uh, it's a lot of fun. And if you'd like to... And the fun thing about the bike tours is they're led by expat, kind of uh, fun-loving, edgy, teen college kids. And, And your kids will sort of think, yeah, these people are cool, and I'm biking along with them through Paris. And it also is uh, real history at the same time. So you might want to consider one of the bike tours, uh, and any guidebook explains those. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, by the way, give your kids the business card of the hotel so that if they do get separated, they've got that. And you tell them whenever you get in trouble, 
you can just hop in a taxi and they'll take you to this hotel and then we'll pay you when you get back to the hotel. We'll pay the taxi when you get back to the hotel. Oh, that's a perfect idea. Yeah. And, and she'll have her cell phone, of course. Yeah. Oh, that's so fun. I remember when our kids were that age, I, I gave them, a, I bumped up their allowance. I said, mom and dad are getting a little more uh, fun money, so you get a little more fun money too. And then I re- uh-huh. required them to keep a journal as part of the deal. And uh, yeah. I also let them keep money in their money belt and learn how to use the foreign coins and everything. And once in a while, I even cut them loose and let them uh, find their own meal. And there's a lot of pedestrian-only streets in Paris where you could let your child uh, roam around and, and uh, drop in and see what it's like to order from a menu and deal with the waitresses and the waiters in a foreign language. And it's a scary uh-huh. thing at first, but it's a very learning experience for any teeny bopper. Oh, it sounds wonderful. All right, yeah. have fun. That's, that's exactly what the kind of thing I'm looking for. Thank you so much. Good for you for thoughtfully taking your uh, little niece to France. Yeah. Okay, bye now. Okay, take care. What do you love about Paris? Tell us at 877-333-7425 or post your comments to our radio feedback forum. There's a link in the radio section at ricksteves.com. And Lana's on the line in Boca Raton, Florida. Hi, Lana. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you have a thought about Paris? We're talking uh, about Paris. Paris, my favorite city. I'm a cat lover, and I discovered Montmartre Cemetery in 1992, and there were cats all over the place. And ever since then, I've been going back and taking pictures. I have over a thousand pictures of the cats. <laughs> you got a thousand pictures of cats in the cemetery at Montmartre. All in the cemetery at Montmartre. Yes. Wow. I bet there's some people that would enjoy seeing all those. I think there would be. There are also people who live in Paris who are dedicated to feeding the cats. They bring in wet food. They bring in uh, cuts of butcher's meat. They bring in medicines. They take them to the vet to be altered, and it's just an amazing culture of people who are not like Americans. Right. Well, <laughs> there in Paris, you've got this wonderful, uh, well, this, this culture of taking care of the stray cats. You've got it in, in Rome also. They've got these kitten refuges. And, yeah, uh, it's, it, it's called something, or Sanctuary. Sanctuary, Argen- yeah. And it's on Largo, Argentina, which is yes. right in downtown Rome. And you, you can go down there and you can visit with these people and they volunteer their time and they're yes. taking care of all the stray cats. Yes, I've been there too. You are an expert on cats in Europe. <laughs> and also in Lisbon, a cemetery called Pregiers where there are many cats. So now why are the cats uh, associated with the cemeteries? Is it just a, kind of a, a nice place for them to go without a lot of cars? I think so. Yeah, because I, uh, I, I can think of all over Europe, if you want to see cats, you go to the cemeteries. Right, and there's also greenery, there's dirt, it's not concrete. Yeah. Now in um, Père Lachaise, there are less cats. Because I've never, I've been to Père Lachaise. That's the most famous and historic cemetery in, in right, Paris. Right. And I don't remember so many cats there. But the Montmartre Cemetery is a little more overgrown and sort of mystical. And I think if I was a cat, I'd probably choose Montmartre. Probably. <laughs> 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 and I'd probably see you there with your camera. You'd probably want me to pose on top of yes. some tombstone. And um, in Buenos Aires, in the Recoleta Cemetery... There are many cats. Uh, okay, I've heard of that too. So, uh, well, I think that's uh, it's fun to have a, a little angle on your travels, and uh, it must be fun when you go to some city to check out the cemeteries. They've got an actual guidebook for the cemeteries in Paris. Do you know what it's called? I believe it's called Permanent Parisian. You got it. You get the little <laughs> chocolate kitty cat. Okay, it's called Permanent Parisian. So if you're really into cemeteries and you want to go to Paris and, and walk among the permanent Parisians, there's a guidebook exactly for you. One of my favorite cemeteries anywhere in Europe is in Milano, and it was uh, established in the late 1800s, and it's filled with this over-the-top, super romantic, you know, end-of-the-century kind of art. I just find it so evocative, and all over Europe you can find that. Lana, thanks for your call, and you've oh, got us Rick, thinking about cats and cemeteries. I love listening to you. Oh, good. Well, thank you for listening to us, and happy travels, and someday I'd like to see maybe not a thousand pictures of cats in Montmartre, <laughs> but, but dozens, okay? Okay. Okay, thanks. Bye now. Thank you. Bye.
Bye-bye. It's just you, me, and Paris right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Katie's on the line from Connor in California. Katie, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so you got some ideas on Paris. Yes, my uh, my non-trip to Versailles. <laughs> I'm recently married. I'd been a nun for a number of years. And um, my husband said, I've got to see Versailles. He had taken his late wife there and loved the trip. Yeah. Now, had you been there before? I had never been there before. I'd been to Paris. So we planned to be there real early. We were taking the train. We were staying out by Le Défense right. and took the tram and then the train. But when I, we changed trains uh, and we went the wrong direction, lost a lot of time. <laughs> I bet. So I had to get back in the train. By the time we got to Versailles, we had reservations. We thought we were secure. But, Rick, the lines were so long, and there were several lines. And we said to the helper there, uh, we have reservations, and he said, well, ma'am, all <laughs> these people have reservations. Wow. They, this was 10 o'clock in the morning by the time we got there. Mm-hmm. So they said, if you come back at 4 o'clock, you're going to be fine. Did that work? So, uh, no, we came <laughs> back at 4 o'clock after roaming the gardens. The gardens are beautiful. Right. And we had a, a wonderful lunch, and then we got a golf cart that went about two miles an hour. So... It took us a long time to get around the gardens. I've been on that golf but, cart. You have it, it literally pedal to the metal, and you think, come on, move I this know. thing along. And it's, it's kind of nice to have it, but you could walk just as fast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was still a beautiful day, but I never did get into Versailles. You know, that's a very frustrating thing, and we should remind people Versailles is horrifically crowded. I was just there this last summer, and it was just a mob scene. Remember, it's closed on Tuesday, so that's horrible. I think if you go very late in the day very, very late. You can spend an hour in there, and it's not very crowded. I was just there for a whole afternoon, and it was there was a lot of people there right to the end, but there wasn't the crush at the end of the day. But do remember, there is a lot of grandeur out in the garden, and you can go out to the oh, Trianon and the Petit Trianon. And these yeah. are pint-sized palaces, every bit as lavish as Versailles, and they're out in the, in the garden, and you can take your little slow-motion golf cart, or you can walk or take a bicycle out there. And I mm-hmm. thought that's a, a real, uh, uh, an amazing part of the whole experience. Yeah, well, that's what I figured, Rick, because we went to Marie Antoinette's palace. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And there were the mirrors. Yeah. They weren't as big. Yeah. They weren't as long. You know, I felt, well, I've seen it. <laughs> you can say, okay, Katie, just between you and me, you can say you've seen the Palace of Versailles. If you saw the Petit Trianon, that's the, the pint-sized palace with the beautiful checkerboard marble uh, patio and the colonnade, uh-huh. and then all that sumptuous uh, party rooms and music rooms and smoking rooms and ladies' right. rooms and all yeah. that. I, I just think that's gorgeous. I, I think one thing we've got to remind people is if you have the, the museum pass, did you have the Paris Museum Pass? No. Now that is the way to get around the lines because when you have the museum pass, you already have a ticket and then you can just walk right up to the front and you can show them your pass and they should let you in. And that's a, a beautiful ah. thing about this Paris Museum Pass because when you go to Paris, you got the Saint-Chapelle, you got the Orsay Gallery, you've got the Louvre, and you've got Versailles. These are four uh, you know, must-see sites and they're always packed. But if oh, you have that museum better. pass, you walk right in, and that'll save you hours. That's probably the, one of the most popular tips I give anywhere in Europe is this Paris Museum Pass. Oh, well, that's a great idea, Rick. Yeah. All right, Katie, thanks yeah. for your call. Oh, you're welcome, and thanks so much for all you do, Rick. You oh, are amazing. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye now. Sonia's on the line from Milton in Ontario. Sonia, thanks for your call. Ah, uh, bonjour, Monsieur Rick. How are you? Bonjour, ça va? I'm, I'm really good, and I think I've exhausted my French right there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. A little bit of Paris that always stays in you no matter what. But, uh, yeah, I have been to Paris many, many times, many, many, many times. But I seem to be almost a tour guide now. People that have not traveled anywhere in Europe, uh, I seem to take them under my wing. I'm taking my cousin. She wasn't too keen on going to Paris. I said, if you don't go to Paris, you will never forgive yourself. I said, I can't tell you what it is. There's just something about Paris. There really said, is. And it has to be lived, you know, there to really experience is. it. You know, I and, don't, I don't uh, know what that is, but there is something about it. It's got the art, it's got the history, is, it's got yeah. the love of life, it's got the, the elegance. But, you know, the, all that elegance is also kind of designed to be accessible by 
people who are, are, are not necessarily the uh, aristocrats. You know, it's people's elegance. It's a joie de vivre. It really is. Yeah. Um, no matter where you go. I mean, when I, I had said that I had taken my granddaughter there, mm-hmm. uh, she was two years old. She was excellent. And the people, mm-hmm. they just took her under their wing. And by the time she got finished, she knew a handful of, of uh, French Isn't words to say. Right? because they, they all wanted her to speak French. They taught her how to wear a beret. Nice. But all these little, little things. As many times as I've been to the Louvre, I have never seen all of it. Right. I like to go to the small, away from the big tourist areas, right. and sit and just people watch. Well, that's what, you, after you've seen the, the essential sights, people watching, just find a, a cafe that you like, and, and it, you know, you pay a little extra, sit out with the view, and just watch the river of life float by. And, and as we were talking about, it's more accessible now. The Champs-Élysées, I understand, used to be a, a grand boulevard where people would literally dress up in order to go there, and then they brought the metro in, and the people who were there all set up, the rich people that had their chauffeur-driven uh, carriages waiting for them and all this, they thought, mm-hmm. oh, there goes the neighborhood. Now the poor people can come in just with a metro ticket. And okay, yeah. there's a McDonald's <laughs> right. on the Champs-Élysées now. Right. The, and- <laughs> and uh, I love their uh, subway stations, especially the one that gets you off at the Louvre. Yeah. It's very interesting with all the uh, yeah. replicas that they have on the walls. And they've got some actual real art, I believe, in the walls, too, there. And if you go to different parts of the city, you'll see the history on display in the metro stop that serves that particular palace or museum, whatever. And the most famous would be the metro stop at the Louvre. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Sonia, it sounds like you're good at meeting yeah. people, and that kind of uh, makes your trip more come alive. How would you recommend to people if they're uninitiated to Paris, what's one tip you could give them to meet some people in Paris so you don't just find a lot of buildings and, and be dealing with the people at the hotel, but how do you really meet people in Paris? Well, what I like to do with anybody that I go with is I'd like to take them for on their first little um, experience, shall we say, and sit at a sidewalk cafe mm-hmm. and just drink it in. Mm-hmm. Just look at the people, mm-hmm. um, the scenery that's around you, and just their everyday life. You know, when you go to that cafe, Sonia, it's important to remember that there'd be a few tourists there, but the other people sitting around you, they probably live in a cramped little apartment just uh, 100 meters away, and this is their place to stretch out their legs and enjoy a a cafe. And uh, a lot of the people there are part of the scene. So remember, you watch the people strolling by, but you also remember you are part of the scene because you're sitting right there, and if you go back the second night in a row, the waitresses will know you, and you're, you're part of the scene as well. That's right. Sonia, thanks for your call and your inspiration. You're most welcome, Rick. Thank you so much, and keep up the good work. I enjoy everything you do. Okay, thanks. Happy travels. Thank you. You too. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to our friends at WHYY Philadelphia for their help this week. You'll find more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. This week, you'll find a feature with Rick and Nika explaining how to best enjoy a snack at one of the many herring stands in Amsterdam. Join us again next week for more travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to France and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Paris's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next French adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.